If you would take your Bibles, please, and open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We now come to the last chapter of uh, 1 John, the uh, the epistle of 1 John. And by this time, you should all be familiar with the three tests that John applies repeatedly with different emphasis each time to the professing Christian. How do we know if someone is indeed a Christian? In chapter 2, he describes all three of them. The moral test, that is obedience, do you obey God's commands? The social test, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And thirdly, the doctrinal test, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? In chapter 3, he deals with two of these, obedience and love. And in chapter 4, he deals with belief and love. And then at the end, as we saw at the end of chapter 4, he combines them uh, both belief and love together. Now we come to chapter 5. And here at the opening of this chapter, we see the three mentioned together. Um, that he, in a sense, has he weaves them together. Um, believing, or he uses the word faith as well. Love and obeying or keeping God's commands. What John is doing here at the end of his letter is to show that it isn't uh, obedience over here and love over here and faith over here, that they in fact are all connected. They're like threads that have been woven into a cloth. What we've been doing for the last few months is looking at each individual thread, which is not bad. But we need to realize, we need to remember that they actually are all woven together. We can't just look at love or just say, okay, I'm a Christian because I love. I don't obey, I don't believe, but but the three must, in fact, go together. Last Sunday, we saw that if we love God, we must also love our fellow believers. Now, John points to the unity the connection between the two loves, love of God and love of fellow Christians. But in between them, we find obedience and belief. The real link to all of these is the fact that we have been born again, the new birth. If one is born of God, the natural growth which happens is seen in obedience, love, and in belief. Let's look at the first five verses First of all, here in 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's begin with verse number one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Um, Previously, I've sort of complained about some of the translation of the NIV, um, and here at another point I'll do so again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
something that has happened and therefore we continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, believing is the consequence of being born of God. It isn't the other way around. Oh, I believe, therefore now I am born of God. No, because God has given me new life, then I do believe. The fact that we believe now, we continue to believe, is the result, it is evidence of our past experience that God has given us new life. But it also means that it involves our relationship with others. And I think the second part of verse number one might be confusing. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And we might think, oh, if you love the Father, then you love the Son. If you love God the Father, then you love God the Son. That's not what John is talking about. What he's talking about are God's children. Us, those who are believers. Um, I don't know. No passage comes to mind in which Jesus is referred to as a child. He is the son. We are children. We are the children of God. And if we have been born of God, then we are not only to love our father, but our brothers and sisters as well, his other children. John has written this before in chapter 4. He's given us this command Whoever loves God must also love his brother. By the way, that is why some people have included, when they divide these up, they include verse number one with chapter four, because the thought continues. But again, the chapter divisions are artificial. We shouldn't let that throw us. Verse number two. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. The evidence that we love the children of God is demonstrated when we love God. But this seems to be going in circles. If you love God, you love the children. We know that you love the children because you love the Father. It just seems like he's going in circles. And all of this is true. If you love God, you will love his people, his children. If you love his children, you, will, this, you demonstrate your love for God. This is true, but there's something else. You must carry out his commands. It shouldn't surprise us. If we have a biblical view of love, not a sentimental one, not an emotional definition of love, then in fact we will see that love is seen in action. In chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, John wrote, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Our love for God is seen in our obeying his commands. Our love for his children is seen in our obeying his commands. John continues, verse number three. This is love for God to obey his commands. There it is. And his commands are not burdensome. I think it is the second statement that we might have a problem with. I think some people, some of God's people, would would disagree politely and say that sometimes it seems very, very hard to obey the Lord. That what he asks of us, what he demands of us, actually, uh, seems unreasonable at times. But I think the problem is we are the ones who are making a decision. Yeah, I don't think that's a fair thing to ask of me. Well, you're the child. 
It is the parent, it is the father who will tell you what in fact you should do. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Would you rather be enslaved to sin or be a child of God and obey his commands? Verse number four. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. One of the reasons that we should not imagine that God's commands are burdensome is that we are not of this world. We belong to God. We are born of God. We have been given the grace to obey. And I would just say in practical terms, if there comes a point, let's say this week, maybe even this day, when there's something you should do in obedience to God, but you just really don't feel like doing that, it seems like a really big deal. It's burdensome. We should call out to God for grace and say, Father, give me the grace to obey. It is by his grace that we obey because we have been born of God. It is not because of us, but because of our birth, that we overcome the world. The world should no longer control us and have power over us. Hopefully the world and its fascination has lost its appeal to us. In verses 4 and 5, John uses the word overcome or overcomes three times, as if to drive the point home. First of all, he tells his readers, everyone born of God overcomes the world. Not quite sure what that means, but let's keep going. Secondly, he tells us, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. What is John referring to here? I would suggest that he is referring to the time, the day when we became the children of God, when we were converted by God's grace. We have been saved out of a system of darkness, otherwise known as the world, in John's writings, and we've been brought into the kingdom of light. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. He says to the Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I think this is the victory that John is talking about. We have been saved by grace, through faith, with both our gift of God, not by anything we have done. 
The third mention of overcoming the world is found in verse number five. Look, if you would, at verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the third time it's mentioned, but here it is in the form of a question. Who overcomes? Present tense. The one who believes? Present tense that Jesus is the Son of God. This may not sound like much. It's like, that's it? I mean, that's how you overcome the world? You believe? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God? But consider, if Jesus is the Son of God, what are the implications? First of all, that God is Trinity. There's a Father, a Son, a Spirit. Secondly, Jesus existed before the world was created. Thirdly, Jesus created the world. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Fourthly, Jesus came into the world as a human being. He lived a perfect life. He gave himself as a self-sacrifice for us and his creation. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to his apostles and others. Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus will return. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then all of these other things are true as well. And such a person who believes this overcomes the world. But I think at this point we need to sort of back up a bit and think. Because a passage like this might cause us to imagine that nothing bad can happen to us. We will overcome. We will always be victorious. I want to remind you of something I said during the series on Advent last December. I think it's important to repeat it here now. Advent begins in darkness. It is in this hiddenness that gives Advent, or it is this hiddenness that gives Advent its special character. The church's life in Advent is hidden in Christ until he comes again. This is what I want you to hear. Which explains why so much of what we do appears appears to be failure, just as his life appeared to end in failure. The church lives in Advent. That is to say, between the two Advents, Jesus has come and Jesus will return. We do not know the day or the hour. And we live in this tension of not knowing when Jesus will return. Because of this, the world oftentimes imagines that it has overcome us. And sometimes we might be afraid that the world has overcome the church. This is simply not the case. The English writer G.K. Chesterton, in the final chapter of his book entitled The Everlasting Man, said, at least five times, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. That's it. It's over. Church is finished. In each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. We imagine somehow, first of all, when we read this verse that we will overcome, we think, well, nothing bad can happen to the church. That's not true. We, in fact, and parts of the church today are suffering great persecution. The church is under attack. But the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
if you think about it, the death of Jesus would seem to indicate a failure. That his enemies thought, we have defeated him, we have killed him. But his death, in fact, opened the door to resurrection. Without his death, there could be no resurrection. Now we come to verses 6 through 12. There are three witnesses here. One might ask, how can I, or how did we come to faith in Jesus? Um, The reality is, we came to faith not because, well, there may have been some emotion involved, but it is because of testimony. There was witness. There was information that was given to us that we heard. And in verses 6 through 9, John describes the nature of these witnesses. Look at verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these are the three, these are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. This is one of those parts about in First John, where like, John, I wish you could be a little clearer. This doesn't, might seem a bit difficult. What does John mean? There are three witnesses, water, blood, spirit. I think it's helpful for us to realize, to remember, to go back to the beginning. The foundation on which John is building his letter is the Incarnation. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Jesus came in the flesh. That's the foundation. So in his argument, he is using a historical argument. He's telling us about the incarnation. John knew Jesus, and that's what he's telling his readers. So, I would say, if that's the case, then the three witnesses are historical. Water refers to his baptism. Blood refers to his death. And the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit that was poured out on the day of Pentecost. In each of these, the Father testifies that Jesus is his Son. In his baptism, do you remember? As soon as Jesus was baptized, that's what the children are studying today, he went up out of the water At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There's the testimony of water. God testified in his baptism. In his death, you say, well, we don't hear God's voice. We don't hear the voice of the Father when Jesus died. No, but we have resurrection. And there is the voice of God in testimony. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we hear... The Father speaking at the baptism, but in the death, in the blood, and in the Spirit, this is something that we don't hear, but we actually see in action. He raises Jesus from the dead, and then 
He gives the Spirit to the Son and the Son pours out the Spirit, which we see on the day of Pentecost. So there are the three witnesses. One might say, without being frivolous, so what? What is John trying to say? Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. These are the results of the three witnesses. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. That is the witness, the water, the blood, the spirit. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think it's pretty straightforward. If we believe in the Son of God, we have the testimony of God in our hearts. The water, the blood, the Spirit. And God has given us the life of His Son, eternal life. Um, You'll notice in verse number 10, John also presents a negative. If you don't believe, if you wish you reject the testimony of the Father, then you're basically calling God a liar. Because you not believe the testimony. Three things are important here about eternal life. First of all, it is not a prize. Something that you win or something that you've earned. It is a gift. Secondly, it is found in Christ. He is the one who gives us life. So interestingly enough, the Father gave us the Son in the Incarnation and He gives us the Son now in our lives. And thirdly, the gift of life is a present possession. And here someone might say, wait a minute, eternal life? I thought that's after you die, then you have eternal life. You're in eternity. Um, The word eternal in Greek actually means belonging to an age. There is the age to come when Jesus returns. But that age isn't over there. It has already come in here, in the resurrection of Jesus. Eternity, the eternal, has already begun. And so the life of Jesus, which is eternal of that age, is that which is in us as well. Verses 13 through 17. The assurance that we have eternal life. How can I know that I am a child of God? Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. One could argue that this actually belongs to the previous passage. Um, I actually think that this is one of the key verses in this epistle. It is the purpose of this letter. Why does John write this letter? To give them assurance. False teachers have come in and say, listen, if you don't believe like us, well, you may not be a Christian. And John says, is there obedience? Is there love? Is there belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Then you are the children of God. That's why he writes this letter. We hear something very similar near the end of the Gospel of John, in John 20. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
when you put that together with what he's just written here in 1 John 5.13, we see four stages. The readers hear the gospel. Secondly, hearing the gospel, they then believe the gospel. Believing the gospel, they then live the gospel in obedience and love. And in living out the gospel, they come to know in a deeper way that Jesus is the Christ. Some people would say, well, this is, this is very arrogant. This is very presumptuous. How can you say that you know that Jesus is the Christ? Well, if God the Father has given us testimony and we say, well, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Then you, in fact, I think are being presumptuous. You do not believe what God has said. One last passage and then we'll be done today. Verses 14 and 15, uh, let's see, 14 through 17. But 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If you know the Gospel of John at all, we find this statement, very similar statements to this in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This can be dangerous because some people say, well, I can ask God for anything and if they don't get it, then they're like, well, then it's not true. God doesn't keep his promises. We need to remember that prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will on God, telling God, this is what you must do for me. Or, I know that's not what you want to do, but because I've asked, then you have to do what I've asked for. No. It is, prayer is a way in which our will, what we want, is put under God's will. I think this is immensely practical because I don't always know what I need. I know what I want, but not what I need. So I can, in fact, based on this passage, I can ask God with confidence for something and know that if I shouldn't get it, God won't give it to me because he knows better than I do. So instead of saying, well, I don't know, I, you know, I really don't know if I should ask about this. I don't know. I would say ask and God can say no. That is not what you need at this point in your life. God will do what is his will. I've often heard people say, don't ask God for that because he might give it to you. Really? Is that, you imagine that you can yank God's chain and he will give you whatever you want? No. Bob Dylan in one of his songs, do you ever wonder just what God requires? You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. Many people think of God as a heavenly vending machine. We put in our prayers and we push a button and God must give us what we want. No. It is his will that is to rule our lives, not our will. Now, having dealt with specific or general prayers, I'm sorry, general uh, prayers, 
Um, now he talks about specific and limited. Uh, he limits this, um, which I think in part is to remind us of our duties as the children of God. Verse 16 and 17 as well. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So there are two types of sin mentioned here. And let me just give you a heads up. We're going to continue this next week. I'm not, um, but I, I, there are certain things I want to touch on today. There are two types of sin mentioned here. The sin that does not lead to death, the sin that leads to death. Some have argued that these are two categories, the forgivable sins and the unforgivable sins. I don't see that. I don't think that's what John is saying. We have at least two examples in scripture, possibly three, but I'll go with two, that give us illustrations of sins that lead to death. I'll read them both to you. First of all, Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. What was their sin? Lying to God. They lied to Peter and the apostles because they put the money at their feet, but they also lied to God. The second occurrence of of sin that leads to death is found in 1 Corinthians 11. It's after the passage we read when we have communion. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. That is, some of you have died. And why is it? Because you did not recognize the body of the Lord. That is your fellow Christians. The sin is, in fact, not considering others not really worried about them, not concerned about them, just thinking about yourself. Okay, if the two sins mentioned where people died are lying and not being considerate of others, 
we're in serious trouble. Wouldn't you agree? Um, I don't think this is what John is saying. There are sins for which people have been killed, that God has killed them. But then other people have committed the same sins and God has not killed them. So what does he mean? And again, we'll pick this up next week. First of all, John does not give us specifics. He doesn't give us details. He doesn't give us a list. Okay, here are the forgivable sins, and the ones that don't lead to death, and these are the sins that lead to death. Secondly, the death he's speaking of is physical death. Not eternal death in hell, but a physical death. Thirdly, why does John write this here at this point in his letter? What is he writing about? When we pray, God hears us and he answers us. That's the context. So prayer isn't something frivolous. You're like, yeah, this person did this and I I think God should kill them for that. So I'm going to pray. No. The issue is not that somehow God might mistakenly kill somebody because we ask him to. No. We pray according to God's will. But lastly, and this is what ties it all into this book, one of the three tests is love. We are to love our brothers and sisters. If we pray for God to kill them, I don't think that's a sign of love. We may say, Father, this person has lied to the church. This person has done this sin. They have brought disgrace on the church. And I think it would be better for the church and for you know the church at large and just for the world if you would just kill this person and get them out of the scene. I would say that that is not a prayer driven by love. We are to pray for our brothers and sisters. We are to love them. And John says we are not to pray for God to kill them. Yeah, there are certain sins for which God has put his people to death. But we are not to pray that way. When we see someone in need, we should pray that God would restore their physical lives. We should not pray that, yeah, Father, I think you need, I think, yeah, this person, you need to get rid of them. Because if we would look in the mirror, we might in fact be that person. We are to love one another. We are the children of God. We love our heavenly parent, our Father. We are to love his children as well. Our Father hears us. He answers us. So when we pray to him, we should not pray, yeah, these other children of yours, yeah, you, need to, you need to do something with them. If someone falls into sin, we obviously are to pray for them. But we are not to pray for their deaths. Because God hears us. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is only by your grace that we are still alive. If you killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to you, 
I don't know that any of us would be alive today. We've made promises to you. We've made vows that we have not kept. And if you killed believers in Corinth because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper that they didn't take into consideration, they were not considerate of others, thinking only of themselves, we might be in serious trouble as well. I thank you that you love us. You have given us eternal life through your Son. A life that has already begun now will continue into the future. You've given us brothers and sisters. We don't always get along, but we are brothers and sisters. And our testimony to the world is that we obey your commands. And one of those commands is that we love one another. Frankly, to do this on our own, we're not able. We don't have the ability, the strength to do this. We only deceive ourselves if we think we do. It is by your grace we have been saved. It is by your grace that we love one another. It is by your grace that we obey you and that we believe your testimony. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. May he drive these truths home in our hearts. May we think on them. Not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence, an awareness of your presence, as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.